if you go and see a show on Broadway, you can't see a production of Matilda, of Annie, of Newsies, of Mary Poppins, you know, all those child performers, that's child labor. We were finding that a lot of members were coming to us and saying that they wanted to cover their podcasts in a simple, easy way without having minimum rates or a difficult signing process. And so it's a super simple, very easy process that allows for a lot of creativity for our members. The strike was called off as a result of the telephone girls and electricians taking the stand that they could fight the matter of discrimination against the telephone operators alone. We are on a spiral, we humans, and our history is a spiral. There are times when it looks like we're going way backwards, and certainly there are many instances of that in today's world. But we are never going lower than we started. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. When you hear the words child labor, your mind may go to the turn of the century photographs taken by Jacob Rees and Lewis Hine of the grim lives of tiny laborers toiling in mines and urban sweatshops. Or you may think about the children in Africa or South Asia who dig for precious metals or harvest crops on plantations. Their exploitation is the target of many international human rights campaigns and condemnations from various global North governments. But recent news reports have revealed that child labor is alive and well in the United States in 2023. Jack Hodgson, a visiting professor in history at the University of Roehampton, joins the Belabored podcast to discuss child labor throughout U.S. history and in the context of labor and civil rights struggles that continue to this day. Late last year, SAG-AFTRA introduced two new podcast contracts that make it easy for producers to be flexible and creative in covering their podcasts at all budgets. Sue Ann Morrow, National Director, Contract Strategic Initiatives and Podcasts at SAG-AFTRA, walks us through the details of these new agreements on the SAG-AFTRA podcast. From On the Line, Stories of BC Workers, a remarkable but relatively unknown chapter of working-class solidarity. While waves of sympathy strikes to support the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike took place across Canada, the most pronounced of these was in Vancouver, BC. Even after workers returned to their jobs, more than 300 women telephone operators stayed out for another two weeks. Our final segment today is from the Labor History Today podcast. A few weeks ago, I drove a few hours west through howling wind and driving rain to the little town of Winber, Pennsylvania, a couple miles from Johnstown. The Pennsylvania Labor History Society and the Battle of Homestead Foundation were holding their annual commemoration of the history of working people. And despite the rough weather, the basement hall at the Slovak Educational Club soon filled up with folks eager to hear a day-long program that included commemorating the United Mine Workers' 1922-23 Winber strike for union recognition, discussions on women in coal and steel, and John Brophy and labor education. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to episode 263 of Belabored, and welcome back to everyone who's missed us on our little hiatus. We appreciate you bearing with us as we figure out how to make the show sustainable. When you hear the words child labor, your mind may go to images from the turn of the century of Jacob Reese's or Lewis Hines' photographs of the grim lives of tiny laborers toiling in mines or urban sweatshops. Or you may think about children in Africa or South Asia digging for precious metals or harvesting crops on plantations. But recent news reports have revealed that child labor is alive and well here in the U.S. in 2023. It's fueled in large part by the influx of migrants at the southern border, mostly from Central America. Many of them are working at major corporations that should know the longstanding labor regulations against the employment of children. But it appears that bosses are turning a blind eye to the tragically obvious presence of underage workers in their factories, construction sites, and farms. I spoke with Jack Hodgson, a visiting professor of history at the University of Roehampton in the UK, about child labor throughout U.S. history and the politics around child workers in the context of labor and civil rights struggles that still continue to this day. Child labor is in the news again. I'm interested in knowing whether you were surprised to see some of the headlines that we've seen recently with the New York Times investigation about um, migrant children who have come to the U.S. by themselves and find themselves working in all sorts of industries across the country. Yes, well, I have to say it was an example where the kind of news headlines were very unsurprising to somebody who kind of looks at this uh, field historically. I think child labor has been in the news a lot in terms of loosening restrictions, but then it's also been in the news because people are violating the laws that people are currently trying to loosen in some states. But it's really the US has never really gotten on top of where it wants to be in terms of child labor, in terms of you know, reforms were always piecemeal and contested, and there's never really been a settled position on child labour. So it's always been this contested ground and been quite controversial in and out of the news. I think some listeners might be surprised to hear that perhaps, you know, thinking that you know, if there is one sort of taboo in labour regulations, you would think that child labour would be one place where they would draw the line. But you're saying that the there's obviously an ongoing debate about it now with some politicians trying to roll back the laws. But you're saying that your research, there's always been pushback to efforts to regulate child labour. Absolutely. I think it's very hard for somebody to take what I would say as a puritanical position on child labor. Most people, a lot of people, if you ask them, uh, would say that they're against child labor. But then if you give them certain examples, they might not be as against it as they originally think. Talking about child labor, things that are in the news are, you know, kids working in fast food restaurants, kids working in factories, kids working in agriculture and things like that. But, you know, if you were to have a complete and absolute ban on child labor, would people, for example, be for saying, you know, if you go and see a show on Broadway, you can't see a production of Matilda, of Annie, of Newsies, of Mary Poppins, you know, all those child performers, that's child labor. Those kids live in their Broadway dream. That's child labor. Child actors in movies and TV, that's child labor. Kids delivering newspapers, having their newspaper round. Many people would see that as a bit of a rite of passage rather than abuse of child labor or kids even taking that first summer job as a summer camp counselor whilst they're technically a minor. Because many people would see those things as being perfectly good things for young people to do, it'd be really hard to have an absolute ban on child labor. So that means it's always this negotiation of where is the line. 
I think some people might also have been surprised when they read the New York Times investigation just seeing the breadth sectors and industries that uh, children are employed in. Um, you know, people may be somewhat familiar, for instance, with children working on farms, right? But, you know, not necessarily working restaurant jobs or working in factories. Can you give us some insight as to how integral child workers have been to the economy historically and also today? Right back in the 1880s, we estimate that about 40% of the workforce were children. So they were a, a huge part of the working economy then. And then that has been rolled back with restrictions. And one of the more successful ways of regulating child labor was instead of having bans, it was by having mandatory school laws. So basically mandating that children were somebody at somewhere else. One that's kind of really been became more prominent in the kind of 2020, 2021, uh, with the kind of end of some places, COVID restrictions, uh, it was fast food joints where, you know, it was, I think it went viral, kind of an advert of a Burger King or a McDonald's, uh, you know, parents, does your teenager want a job? We're hiring 14 year olds. The idea that many of these minimum wage jobs don't pay a very good living. So if people are, rather than there being a kind of labor crisis, there's enough workers, but workers are not paying taking full-time jobs that won't pay. So many of these industries have been looking towards hiring children in part-time roles in order to pay less wages than what an adult worker would demand. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crouchy-Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And I'm Ben Whitehair, Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA. Podcasts have become an increasingly popular form of entertainment with major entertainment companies, smaller independent producers, and individuals producing and distributing podcasts for millions of listeners. Podcasts can be a great source of creativity, exposure, and income for performers who want to reach a wider audience. Late last year, the union introduced two new podcast agreements that make it easy for producers to cover their podcasts. Whether your podcast is low budget or high budget, scripted or non-scripted, true crime, interview, or lifestyle, you can cover any genre using these new agreements. The contracts are super simple and allow producers and performers to be flexible and creative. To walk us through them, we are joined by Sue Ann Morrow, who is National Director, Contract Strategic Initiatives, and Podcasts at SAG-AFTRA. We're also delighted to be joined by Drew Rausch and Jason Silva, executive producers of the upcoming scripted podcast, Macaw. The two have used the contract and will share their experience with it firsthand. Welcome to you all. Yes, welcome to the podcast about podcasts. <laughs> very meta. <laughs> well, I'm super excited to dive into this. Sue Ann, I'd love for you to walk us through the two contracts, starting with Micropod Agreement. Who's it for? What does it allow for? Why would members use it? 
So the Micropod contract is perfect for members and podcast producers whose podcasts don't have a substantial amount of monetization yet or a high budget. Specifically, this contract is for projects that have or anticipate under $10,000 of budget and monetization combined. Uh, Monetization comes in lots of different forms, as podcasters know. So it can be advertising income. It can be Patreon and other patronage services. So if you're under $10,000, the Micropod would be right for you. The reason members would be interested in using this contract, the Micropod, and covering their work is similar to why folks cover their projects under the the micro-budget agreement. It's because they want to be covered under a union contract whenever they're behind a microphone. We were finding that a lot of members were coming to us and saying that they wanted to cover their podcasts in a simple, easy way or work with their friends on a podcast in an easy way without having minimum rates or a difficult signing process. And so it's a super simple, very easy process that allows for a lot of creativity for our for our members. I love that. Probably anybody listening knows that the scope of a project can vary greatly. And oftentimes it starts with something much more simple, often you know, the budget is coffee and pizza and, you know, uh, a couch to sit on and a, and a microphone that's there. So it sounds like that's that's a great option. It's so true. Moving up the production chain a bit, can you tell us a bit about the independent podcast agreement? What What's unique about that and when would people use that? Yeah, the independent podcast agreement is more for podcast producers who are creating podcasts with professional performers and who have a budget or monetization of $10,000 or more. It's also a great fit for members who have an LLC or a corporation and who want to cover their podcast if they're generating substantial income. The major difference between the independent podcast agreement and the micropod is that pension and health contributions can be made under the independent podcast agreement and they're not required or permitted under the micropod contract. The only other difference that I should mention is that you cannot gain eligibility from working under the Micropod, but you can get eligibility to join the union by working under the independent podcast agreement. I feel like this is a remarkable tool for so many sag After members to be able to step into the storytelling arena. And I really genuinely thank you from the bottom of my heart for getting this work done. Gosh, thanks. Thanks for being here and saying that. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that brings to light stories from BC's rich labour heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. In our latest episode, we highlight a remarkable but relatively unknown chapter of working-class solidarity that took place in this province and across the country. I'm referring to the wave of sympathy strikes to support the renowned Winnipeg General Strike in 1919. Sympathy strikes erupted across the country, from Victoria and Prince Rupert to the industrial community of Amherst, Nova Scotia. In Vancouver, the executive of the local Trades and Labour Council was empowered to call a general strike if military intervention took place in Winnipeg. But when Winnipeg postal workers were fired for defying a back-to-work order, that was enough. Vancouver workers voted to strike on June 3rd, to back their striking brothers and sisters in Winnipeg. Labour historian Elaine Bernard argues the Vancouver general strike was even more radical than the strike in Winnipeg because, she has written, rather than being directed at local captains of industry, it was motivated by solidarity for workers more than a thousand miles away. 
and they had their own demands. Reinstatement of the Winnipeg postal workers, pensions and compensation for soldiers and their dependents, nationalization of food storage plants to combat post-war hoarding, and the six-hour day for industries hit by unemployment. There are few recordings of those who took part in that long-ago strike, but seafarer Jimmy O'Donnell was interviewed by Co-op Radio in the 1970s. Because he had been at sea, he had not joined the strike until its final days. Even then, solidarity remained strong, as Seaman O'Donnell relates in his colorful account. 1919, that Winnipeg strike. When all of Winnipeg started, everybody went on a symphony here. Sailors and the mess boys and firemen. So when we come into Vancouver, we brought that scow spruce down here into Vancouver, and the skipper said, don't go ashore. I said, I can't. I've got to go ashore tomorrow. Tickets all. I said, I can't. I've got to go to the Union Hall. I've got to report in. I've been out now for a month. So I walked in. Well, no pickets never bothered me. I walked through. I had my Union button up. Went up to the hall. He said, I just come in. He said, where you been? I just come in. Come in on the top of the bell. What I do? He said, get your stuff off. That's the way you treat you, see. Get your stuff off. Get off. Strike on. Okay. I walked down again. That's when I worked, worked with this little cockney guy after that on the Queen City. He come running up to me. He says, what are you doing with that button on? I says, I bought this Sailor's Union. It's not Sailor's Union. He said, you know they strike on? I said, yeah. He says, where are you going? I said, Tug Bell. Well, he said, they strike you. We're going to cross this picket line? I said, yes. I'm going down there to get my Come, We just got in last night. I'm going to take them off the ship. I'm going on strike with you. Two days, the strike was all over. I lost my job. All told, 10,000 Vancouver workers joined the strike. Streetcar drivers, railway workers, woodworkers, stevedores, shipyard workers, brewery employees, city employees, including non-emergency police and firefighters, and telephone operators and linemen. They stayed out for an entire month. The action of the telephone girls in responding to the call for a general strike has placed them in a class by themselves amongst women workers in this province. With only a few backsliders, these girls have won the admiration of all those who admire grit and working class solidarity. That their action will be remembered by the workers not only of this city, but by the workers all over the continent for their loyalty goes without saying. If all the men had displayed the same spirit, the strike could not have been finished with them carrying on their fight against discrimination after the general strike was called off. The strike was called off as a result of the telephone girls and electricians taking the stand that they could fight the matter of discrimination against the telephone operators alone.
tried petitions, we tried talking, we tried, finally we took our kids to work and changed diapers on the president of the university's desk, and we got a daycare center. Yesterday, I drove a few hours west through howling wind and driving rain to the little town of Winber, Pennsylvania, a couple miles from Johnstown. The Pennsylvania Labor History Society and the Battle of Homestead Foundation were holding their annual commemoration of the history of working people. And despite the rough weather, the basement hall at the Slovak Educational Club soon filled up with folks eager to hear a day-long program that included commemorating the United Mine Workers' 1922-23 strike for union recognition discussions on women in coal and steel, and John Brophy and labor education. As folks sipped their hot coffee and munched on donuts, coal miners' balladeer Tom Brighting regaled them with labor songs. That's him singing, I'm Chris Garlock in Winber, Pennsylvania, and this is Labor History Today. Battle of Homestead Foundation President John Hare starts things off. Then we'll hear about the 1922-23 mine workers strike in Winber from the Pennsylvania Labor History Society's Nick Molnar. A lot of times the history is not talking about what happened to our great-grandfathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, how we made a living and how we fought to be able to make a living and how we fought to be able to have safe conditions at work. And um, we want to tell those stories uh, and we want to tell them because our children are facing as uncertain a future as our great-grandfathers did. In 1922 there were 8,000 people lived in Wimber proper. And like I said, in those little communities, those little mines outside of there, there were several hundred families living at each, at each one of those sites. When the strike happened, the company, well, the company itself started out uh, as a steamship company in New York City. They controlled all the, the whole port in New York City. They also uh, supplied coal to all the ships that were coming in and out of New York City Harbor. and. Uh, they also supply coal to the Navy, and that was just what came out of this area. On Good Friday of 1922, the miners voted and went on strike. What happened was, after a while, the company threw all the people out of their company houses. The company owned all the houses around. Matter of fact, not only did they own all the houses, they built all this whole community here because they had a group of brickworks and all kinds of ancillary businesses, uh, a construction company, a brickworks, plumbers, the whole nine yards. And they basically control and still do control this, this community fairly uh, rigidly. But when the strike happened, they decided to throw, throw everybody out of the houses. And I don't mean they just told them to get out. They literally threw their clothing, their bedding, all their food, everything out into the street, out into the mud. There was really no streets. And they starved them to death, basically what they did. Those families that didn't have 
relatives that lived outside of this area. Some of them lived in tent colonies for 12 to 16 months outside of town on private property. And the United Mine Workers District 2 supplied them with food and whatever uh, they needed. But basically what it did is it almost bankrupted District 2. Next is Kip Dawson, a retired coal miner and member of the United Mine Workers Union who received this year's Mother Jones Award for her work to preserve the history of and build on centuries of worker struggles. Because history is not a one-way up or down story, we are on a spiral, we humans, and our history is a spiral. There are times when it looks like we're going way backwards, and certainly there are many instances of that in today's world, but we are never going lower than we started. In fact, we keep building on the history of those who made the struggles happen. The, the history that Steffi presented to you here, the history that came before that and continued since it, we keep moving up, even though sometimes we have lost. We keep building on the struggles we've had before us. And here I want to give a tip of the hat to all of those historians who are sitting in this room and to the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Because if it were not for you, who are keeping alive our stories, then we would be going slowly downhill right now. But we're not doing that. We are building on the history that we are not only keeping alive, but we're making even more alive. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. This might be the end, but you've got your last chance at salvation from sin. Here's my favorite verse. Well, the churches was jammed and the churches was packed. And that dusty old dust storm would blow so black. The preacher could not read a word of his text. So he folded his specs, took up a collection, said, So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. So long it's been good to know ya This dusty old dust is getting my home And I've gotta be drifting along One more time, nice and loud So long it's been good to know ya So long it's been good to know ya So long it's been good to know ya This dusty old dust is getting my home and I've gotta be drifting along thank you so much everybody have a wonderful day and thank you to all of you who put this together and, and keep the labor history of this country alive thanks I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1967. That was the day the Taylor Law went into effect in New York State. It was celebrated for granting public employees the right to organize and elect union representation. But it's also roundly criticized for stripping public sector workers of their right to strike. It was crafted and enacted in response to the militant, victorious New York City transit strike of January 1966. The Taylor Act amended key points of the 1947 Condon Wadlin Act. 
which first prohibited public sector strikes in the aftermath of a teacher strike in Buffalo. But strikes persisted, and the act was seen as largely unenforceable. In the aftermath of the 1966 transit strike, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller appointed a committee chaired by labor relations professor George Taylor to make, quote, proposals for protecting the public against the disruptions of vital public services by illegal strikes, while at the same time protecting the rights of public employees. In addition to granting the right to organize, the Taylor Act also establishes impasse procedures for dispute resolution, defines and prohibits improper practices, prohibits strikes by public employees, and established the Public Employment Relations Board. But public sector unions argue the law gives no incentive for employers to settle disputes or negotiate contracts in a timely manner or in good faith. While public sector unions have struck since its enactment, Transport Workers Union 100 was subjected to harsh fines in both the 1980 and 2005 transit strikes. During the 2005 walkout, TWU 100 was issued a $1 million a day penalty, its automatic dues collection was suspended, and its leader Roger Toussaint was jailed for 10 days. The union continues to push for changes to the law. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired last week on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock, urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs> <laughs>